0: It gets worse. Chapter 4. Now the man had marital relationships with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and she gave birth to Cain. Then she said, I have created a man just as Yahweh did. And then she gave birth to his brother Abel and Abel took care of the flocks while Cain cultivated the ground. So Adam and Eve have children. Now, once again, the the text seems to kind of hint at the fact that Cain and Abel are the first children. But it doesn't really say that either. When we get to Genesis 5, we're told that Adam had Seth. And that kind of makes it sound like he's the first one, but we know that's not true. And we know he doesn't even have Seth till he's like 300, 600 years old. That's a long time to go without having kids, especially in the command, be fruitful and multiply. Are there other kids? We're also told that he had other sons and daughters. The reality is we don't know. How many children have they already had? We don't know. When Cain gets married, who does he marry? We don't know. Where where all these people come from that he builds a city? We don't know. Now, yes, you can hypothesize and say, well, they had brothers and sisters, so he must have married a cousin or something like that. And if you really truly believe that Adam and Eve are the first humans, then yes, somewhere in the beginning, somebody's marrying brothers and sisters to get this whole thing going. But the reality is, we don't know. And the text doesn't choose because the text isn't interesting, interested in explaining genealogies and population growth to us. The text is interested in a very specific person who committed a very specific sin to make a very specific point. Because here's the question. If you really think the Bible is trying to tell you everything, then what about all those other sons and daughters that we're never told about? And we're told that every person in the genealogy of chapter 5, they had sons and daughters. They had a son, But we're only told about one. And what's interesting is the first son that is mentioned in the genealogy that's born to every single person is always born after, like, they've been alive for 300 years. Why? There's no way they went 300 years without, like, that many people without having sex and having children. I mean, a lot of our kids can barely go 12 years. So the reality is, we don't know. There's so much going on here. All we know is that Cain was born first, in comparison to Abel. Is there this sense that Cain might be the firstborn? Yes, but we don't know. And so we're told that Cain, we don't really know what his word means, his name means, but we're told that Abel is Vapor. Like, wow, that's a really nice way to name your kid. Beautiful baby boy. I'm going to name him Passing Away Vapor. Now, most likely that's not his given name. I mean, there's so many people like that in the Bible, like Orpha, and the book of Ruth is named to turn in the neck. Nabal is named Fool. Okay? I doubt like moms and dads are like, beautiful baby boy, I'm gonna name him Fool. Remember, names communicate character. And it wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple names throughout history. And we even do this, we give nicknames. Some of us got nicknames based on a really mean character that somebody wanted to point out in us, or a character that they made up about us. But we have multiple names. American Indians would have multiple names. If they accomplished different things or whatever, they'd be given new names. And it wasn't uncommon to say, "This is, I am da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland has, like, eight names. Okay? Like, he has, like, literally six middle names. So, don't think of this as, like, that was his birth-given name. It could be the name that God gave him to illustrate a point in the story. Now like, well, God's deceiving us, then. That's not really his name. Well, no. He's not. That is his name. If God created Abel, he has the right to give him a new name. So don't think of this as a not, the text is not being accurate. The text is accurate because is not Abel going to live up to the name that God gave him? And God has every right to give him that name because he is God. So God is communicating something about Abel, his character, what's going to happen to him. Remember, we're so interested in birth certificate name. Like when we're signing the mortgage papers to get our new house. <laughs> We signed everything first name and last name. And Chase Bank rejected it and sent every signature back and said you had to redo it because on your tax forms it's first name, middle initial, last name. And we had to redo it all again. I mean, come on. That's legalism. The IRS doesn't even care about that. But that's the way we think. Technical, birth name, credit card. What's on your name? Your credit card. But in the ancient world, names were character. Names were hopes. Names were dreams for people. And so you can name him Abel and be just as accurate as what's on their birth certificate. So don't, don't let, and, and, and I say that, I'm spending a lot of time on that now, because we're going to see that over and over and over and over again in Genesis and through the rest of the Bible. So don't get hung up on that technicality, historical accurateness of the things. It's just, they don't think like us. Not wrong, just different. And so she names them. And she says, with the help of God, I have given birth to now, some people have interpreted this as, like, pride. I, God needed my help to create kids. I Think of it more as just, like, she sees herself as blessed by God, that, like, God is joining me. I mean, we all know it's impossible to have kids without God. I mean, yes, an atheist obviously thinks they're having kids without God. But when we had our first kid and we went to the classes and started reading, I actually was more amazed of all the things that could go wrong and don't, like, Everything has to be so perfect at every single second. It's like, it's a miracle that anybody comes out alive. And so that gave me a new appreciation for the fact of like, this really is truly a partnership with God. And, And he doesn't choose miraculous conceptions. But at the same time, there's no way we're having kids without God. And so think of it that way that yes, I've been judged, I've been kicked out of the garden, I've been removed from the presence of God, but praise God that he still chose to join me and I can still have life. And that's what she's communicating here. The irony is, is that kid's going to destroy life. That kid's going to destroy life. So we're told that Abel is a keeper of livestock, which connects to the rule and subdue over the animals from Genesis 1. But we're told that Abel, sorry, Cain is a Um, um, the tiller of the soil, which seems to connect to the judgment. Now, a lot of people said that makes Cain automatically bad because he chose to work the soil, which is judgment, and Abel chose to be a keeper of livestock, which is the rules to do. No, 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 no. Because remember, God also commanded Adam and Eve to keep and till the garden and expand it. So even the garden is a result of judgment, that doesn't mean that Cain's bad for having that profession. And we're told that they sacrificed their Cain, grain, and Abel animals, and that God accepted Abel, but not Cain. Now, we're not told directly how God accepted. How do they know that God accepted one, and not the other? Did God like say, not good enough? Now, we do know later in the Bible, there are times where people present a sacrifice to God pre-law, and God literally sends fire down from heaven and consumes it all up. And the fact that he has done that implies that maybe that's what he did here. But once again, we don't know. We're not specifically told what is wrong with Cain's sacrifice. Now, I used to think that it was because Cain offered up a grain sacrifice and not an animal sacrifice because the law makes it very clear that you had to offer an animal sacrifice for your sins first before you can offer up a grain sacrifice, which is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of your own works. And so he's offering up a work sacrifice. The problem with that is the word minna used here of his sacrifice is not an animal sacrifice, burnt offering. Burnt offerings were used to atone for sins. There's a very specific word used for the atonement of sin sacrifice in Leviticus. The word minna is used here of just you referring of any sacrifice. It can also refer to a grain sacrifice. And so now i have come to realize through the word that I don't think the emphasis is on one is grain and one is animal. What is interesting is that the emphasis seems to be on that Cain brought grain, but Abel brought his animals, even the fattest. And when you go throughout the Bible, the fat is the best part. One, because God wants you to burn, every sacrifice requires the fat. Now some, the, the burnt offering for your sins requires the entire animal to be consumed in the flames. But the other sacrifices don't require the meat to be consumed, but it does require the fat to be consumed, and God calls it a pleasing aroma. And if you want to know what a pleasing aroma smells like, drive by a hamburger joint or grill on your own grill. It smells good. You know why it smells good? That's the fat. If you cook something on a George Foreman grill, it doesn't smell as good. And if you put somebody's arm to the flame and it burns, it doesn't smell good. It's the fat that smells good. Okay? And so the fat is like the part that God really likes. That's the pleasing aroma. And so the fat is the idea it's fatty. If something is not fatty in an the animal, then it's diseased or not good or something. It's weak and it's, then you're not presenting your best. So the emphasis seems to be on that. But even that, it doesn't really matter about what sacrifice they're bringing. All that matters is that God looks at the heart and Cain's wasn't there. Because that is the theme that's all throughout the Bible. Especially when Samuel comes to Saul and hits it hard. And Saul says, I know you told me to kill all the animals, but I didn't. It's okay though. I'm going to use them to worship you and sacrifice them. And Samuel says, does God desire worship more than obedience? No. And so the point is the heart. And we then later revealed that because the Bible goes on and it never explains what the sacrifice is, more, what it does go on, and it keeps revealing Cain's heart to you. And so what we do get is a further explanation of Cain's heart, not the sacrifice. Which means when the Bible only gives you like half a sentence on the sacrifice, but he spends the rest of chapter 4 on the heart, that's the main point. That's the main point. So Cain was not accepted, and he became very angry. Cain seems to have more of the idea of a pagan god like what Eve had, than what the others had. So verse 6, notice that Yahweh pursues them. Yahweh pursued Adam and Eve in the garden, and now Yahweh is the one pursuing Cain. God is always the one pursuing, always the one pursuing. And He comes to Cain before He even kills Which means God is interested in the heart. He's interested in the mind. Because he doesn't wait for you to murder somebody and then judge you. He comes to you before you can commit the sin. And he starts dealing with you. And he says this. Why is your expression downcast? Is it not true that if you do what is right, you will be fine? Like, why are you so depressed? Why are you so downcast? What is wrong? If you seek me out and trust and obey, for there is no other way then will not things go well for you? And we know that. Over and over again, it's amazing if you just do the things that God has commanded you to do. You have a life on so many different levels. Mental, emotional, physical, spiritual. And so this is what he's communicating. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to control, dominate. That same word that was used of Eve, of her husband. Now, what this immediately makes you think of is this is a descriptive word. Sin doesn't crouch. But what crouches? A serpent ready to strike. And so what God's doing is painting a picture to invoke two images here. One, to remind Cain, remember when the serpent was crouching at your mom and she didn't close the door and it struck and killed her. Don't make the same mistake. Learn from your parents. The other thing it's doing is it's reminding you, the reader, of that constant conflict between the serpent and man. And he's in the midst of that conflict, and he's not learning from his mom and dad, because he's opening the door. This is the first place that you kind of get the hint that the serpent might have now beginning to move into a more concept of a chaos. It still doesn't scream devil and demons but it does start communicating that there's chaos because there's nothing literally crouching next to Cain right now. So at this point, crouching has now become something supernatural or metaphysical or beyond just the animal now. And so this is where we get the idea that the serpent is now going to become a symbol of just chaos. So he goes on and he says, do what is right. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Notice that rule and subdue again. Which communicates even more that Adam and Eve were supposed to rule and subdue. Not just resist, but rule and subdue. And so God is commanding him, you have headship. Rule and subdue the chaos. You are in the image of God. You are in the image of God. Rule and subdue the chaos. But the fact that God's conversation is brought to an end, We're not told that Cain ignored him. We're not told that, oh, by the way, the conversation came to end and Cain Cain off went out the fields. We're not told how much time happened between God's conversation and the fields. The fact that it just, boom, ends abruptly and bam, he's with Cain, shows and communicates the abruptness of Cain not listening to God. The abruptness in the storytelling communicates the abruptness of Cain. He's not listening. He's not heeding. The next thing that God wants you to know is he just goes to action. So he invites his brother out in the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and Abel killed him. Sorry, and Abel, and he killed him. Now, we're not told, was this premeditated? Did he invite him out thinking, I will kill him? Or did they go out in the fields and he's angry at his brother and mad all the time and they're out there and something happens and the camel, the straw breaks the camel's back and Cain goes in a fit of passion and loses it and kills his brother. We don't know. But what we do know is that he seems to have no remorse. Because when God pursues him again, notice the pursuing, Cain doesn't go to God. God pursues him. He says, where is your brother Abel? Once again, God is not saying, I don't know where he is. I live up in heaven. I look down on the earth like it's Google Earth, and I have no idea where he is. <laughs> He's communicating, do you love me enough to tell me? But notice Cain's flippant response And my brother's keeper? The irony here is that's the word of like keeping livestock. Like my brother's just some kind of animal that I'm supposed to be in charge of. So in some sense, the answer is no, Cain. You're not your keeper of your brother. No, you're not big brother. No, you're not supposed to keep an eye on where your brother is all the time like he's some wandering sheep. But the implication also kind of is, but yeah, he is your brother. And no, you don't have to keep an eye on the time, but no, you don't murder him either. And so what it is is a total lack of remorse, a total lack of care. And what makes this sin so grievous is not only the autonomy that is involved here, and no, he's not declaring himself, I've gained knowledge to open up my eyes and gain power and control, but what he is saying is, I don't like him, I don't want him. I'm in control, I'm going to remove him. But it also communicates the idea that he just attacked the image of God. God gave Abel life, and God chose Abel to represent him and expand the garden. Which means now Cain killing Abel is killing God's representative, killing the one that God gave life to, and killing the plan of God to expand his kingdom. This is why murder is so grievous. Because what God gave life to, you've now decided that life shouldn't exist. I want it God. Gone. What God says, I'm putting myself into this person to represent me, you say I'm going to attack that image. What that person's supposed to have a meaning and purpose in the world, you're going to kill that meaning and purpose that God gave him. You see this with the brothers of Joseph, when Joseph is coming, and they say, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and see what happens to his dreams. But who gave him his dreams? God. What do the dreams communicate? What God is going to do with his life? So basically what are they saying is let's kill God's plans and see what God can do with that. That's the true heart of murder. Because if the ambassador of Russia, Russia came to America and we killed him, would not Vladimir Putin take that as if we had killed him and attacked him personally? And when David sends ambassadors out and they send the ambassadors back with their beards half-shaven and their clothes ripped off their backs, David says, they have done this to me and they have humiliated me and they have attacked me. That's what the image of God is. So you are attacking and murdering God to a certain extent. And so this is more than just, oh, it's just a human This is your attacking the image of God, the representative of God, the plan of God, the will of God, the expansion of God. And you're saying, it all matters is the expansion of my kingdom. And that's what makes murder so grievous. I am right. Isn't that what most arguments and relationships are? It's not ever about the toilet paper. One of my... My, the, the biggest argument my wife and I ever had when we first got married, and even to this day, was on how to pronounce harassment. She swore that it was sexual, or she, it was sexual harassment, and I said it was harassment. And she, I am the learning disability, dyslexic, can't, very, can't talk very well kind of person, always struggled through school, and she is the editor, the grammar whiz. English is her thing. So she swore. And we had this, we were trapped in the car on the way to Virginia. So that made it even worse. And we were arguing and we got heated and passionate. Not yelling and screaming, but like, I got it. No. And she said, and I knew I was right because I know I'm not right on most things when it comes to grammar and English. But when like that one, I knew. Like I was like happy that I knew. And so we we got silent for the last hour, just kind of drove in. And we got into the house, and the first thing she did, she went to the dictionary, she read it, she closed it, and walked away. I was right. But the argument was not about the word. The argument was about, doggone it, I'm right. And that's what it always comes down to. It always comes down to that. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. That's sin. That's sin. The only time I can ever say I'm right is because God said so. It's the only time I can have total confidence. I mean, half the time, you don't even know if you're right about what you're even feeling. God gives him a judgment. Then Yahweh said to Cain, where's your brother? Oh, we read that, sorry. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Does God hear the cry of victims, yes. Notice the blood, which is life. The ground has soaked up the blood of Cain or sorry, Abel. But just as that ground has become death in the grave, that ground is also the ultimate source of blessing. And the ground is taking you into its soil as judgment for your sin. And Cain has now killed his brother, so the ground is taking Abel for his just general sin, but now the ground demands the sin of murder to be punished, so to speak. Not literally, metaphorically. And the life of Cain demands justice. And so what this communicates is God is saying, the blood, the life, the cries of victims matter to me and I am a just God, and I must deal with this. That's what he says to your brother. I'm not my brother's keeper, but I am his keeper. You were made in the image of God, came, which means you were meant to be the image to your brother. And because you refuse to be the image of your brother, I am God to your brother, and I am just. And there will be consequences. And so he judges them. Now notice that the, crime, the punishment fits the crime. Because you chose to take your brother's life, you will now be killed and have no life and wander. Or no, you'll not be killed, but you'll be wandered. You'll have no life. You took your brother's home from him. I will take your bro- home from you you will forever be a wanderer. And because you wanted to keep things from the soil for yourself, the soil will no longer produce for you. Notice that before, the judgment was the soil will not freely produce anymore. Now the soil is not going to produce at all for Cain. And because you didn't want to be dependent, you didn't want your brother to take care of your brother, now you're going to be completely dependent upon the care of other people to live and survive. Because if you live in an agricultural community where there's very few humans on the planet right now and the only way that you can survive is animal and grain but animals are not what you're good at and grain doesn't produce for you anymore now you completely depend upon everybody else. And this is a judgment. I'll take your home away because you took his home away. You refuse to take care of other people now you're completely dependent upon other people. The ground won't produce for you at all anymore. Now Cain doesn't repent. He cries out, he says, I can't handle this. True repentance is, oh, I am so sorry. I have sinned against you and you alone, God. But Cain says, this is not fair. I can't handle this. This is more than I can bear. But notice God's response. The all-loving parent, father, God actually lessens his punishment in the face of no repentance. Which means he just doesn't hear the cries of the victims He also hears the cries of the perpetrators, even when they're not truly repentant. It's amazing how many kings, the prophets come and judge and condemn, and the king cries out for mercy but never repents, and God gives them mercy. And especially when you get to Exodus, it's almost, God is a God of justice. He will punish. He will condemn. We see that. But he's also a God of mercy and love and compassion. And when you go through the Bible, there's all these judgments, some pretty severe judgments, and the world looks at that and says, look, there's your God. Mean, cruel, vindictive, punishing. But you also need to pay attention to how many times he forgives and how many times he puts mercy and how many times he backs off the judgment and how many times when he judges, how many people don't get the judgment. And God says, I'm going to kill them all at Mount Sinai after the golden calf. And Moses says, please God, don't. And God says, okay. Now, It's not like God's like, oh, I never thought about doing that, or thanks to me to Moses, or I never would have. But it's almost like God is looking for any chance to show mercy and grace and love, and Moses just says, please don't. God's like, okay. It's like it doesn't take anything at all to convince him. And that's what you see here. King's just like, this is more than I can bear, and God's like, okay, I'll give you mercy. But there's still judgment. Because the mark on his forehead, we have no idea what the mark is. The word mark actually sounds a lot like Cain's name and also sounds like murder. So the mark might be Cain's name. Maybe Cain's name was not his name. Maybe it made a different meaning. Because it's not uncommon for God to also change the pronunciation of a word. And if you change the pronunciation, it's spelled the same, but if you change the pronunciation, the meaning changes. Or it's the same word spelled the same, or the same pronunciation like son and son, but you change one letter and the meaning changes. So it could be that his mom did name him a Cain, but it was pronounced slightly different or one letter changed, and that's why we don't know what Cain means. But then God kind of slightly alters it to mean judgment or murder, and that becomes his mark. Maybe his mark is now his new name. And every time somebody says his name, they'll think he's a murderer. And so his mark, just like the animal skins, becomes not only an act of provision to protect him from other people doing that to him, but it also becomes a constant reminder to him and everybody else of what he's done. But it's also not total mercy, because if somebody murdered him and killed him, that would bring his judgment to an end. To live a long life as a wanderer with no home is a worse judgment than to just end the judgment immediately. Now what's interesting is here is Cain doesn't obey. He's like your kid that you ground them and then they sneak out the window. The judgment's still there, but they rebel because what does he do? He goes off and he builds a city. Now, it doesn't mean he's undone God, See, he showed you, I've made a home. The idea is wonder in his heart too. I mean, all of us know that you can have a home building and never feel at home or that you belong anywhere. And so even though he's tried to overcome the curse, he really has not. Because God's judgments are never just physical. They always go to the core of the being. And so he goes out and he wanders, and he builds a city and names after his son, Enoch, which means glory. Like he doesn't name it after God. He names it after his son. And then we get into the genealogy of Cain. He builds a home. He builds a city. Where do the people come from? I have no idea. He names the city after his son, which is usually all about you and all about your son, a legacy, a descendants. So I'm going to continue my name on. It's all about him. No, no repentance whatsoever. And knows he goes east of Eden. East of Eden. Away from the garden. Away from judgment. Or away from um, life. And God says, anyone who kills Cain, I will avenge seven times or sevenfold. Now, that doesn't mean that like God's going to punish him seven times and then I'm done. The idea of sevenfold is completion. The idea is that there's going to be divine, complete, ultimate wrath on this person. That God is personally going to get involved in the punishment of this person. So what's the point of this story and the rest of chapter four? which we'll pick up on next week. The point is this. Sin has infiltrated the family. Look, it's very important you to understand, no, we don't know if there were any other brothers or sisters before Cain and Abel. But when you give the genealogy of chapter 5, we know that this is all happening in one lifetime. We're not talking about like multiple generations later. The point is not this. It's not like... Adam and Eve kind of sin And decide I want to do my own thing. And the next generation's sin grew a little bit more. And people kind of like. Made up some false truths. And the next generation sinned a little bit more. By just directly lying. And the next generation sinned even more. By cheating people. And the next generation sinned even more. By killing some animals. And the next generation sinned even more. By oppressing and enslaving people. And the next generation sinned even more. By murder. And the next generation started genocide. The point is like. The first generation of kids, and he's committing one of the grievous sins you could ever commit, removing the image of God from the planet. And he's not just removing the image of God from the planet, he's doing it to his own brother. And the point is that sin is in everyone, instantaneously, full-grown, outright autonomy, rebellion, to the worst sin that you can possibly get. And when we get to Lamech, we're going to see that even more. And we're going to see the arrogance and the pride and the bragging of it. And the point is that the family is sinful, that the individual is chose to be sinful, which means automatically from moment of birth, the family becomes sinful. And once the family breaks down, then we're going to see the culture break down and the flood and the Tower of Babel. And that's the exact point that Leviticus is going to make. When Leviticus starts giving the rules of how you're supposed to live, he starts with the family. And then he moves to the culture, and he has very few rules for the culture because the idea is that the family is doing what they're supposed to do, the culture will automatically be healthy. And this is why the demonic world always tries to destroy the family first. And the first attack against America, big, 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 big attack, that succeeded was not taking prayer of the schools, but the Industrial Revolution that took the father out of the home and then enforced the public education which took the children out of the home and left the mom behind. And now you spend most of your day not with each other. Because if you can destroy the family, the, 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 author, the, the, the founder of Satanism, Alistair Crowley, in the Western world said, enemy is public, family is public enemy number one. Destroy that and then Christianity will be destroyed and the world is ours. And Hitler Lennon, they all went after the families. TV goes after the family. Every TV show, the dad is dumb, parents are outdated, kids do whatever they want, and then now you have rebellion. And that's the point that the Bible is making here. That sin is full grown, if you want to call it that, totally infiltrated in the family. Which means you should expect something really horrible in the next chapters. And that's the point that God is trying to make with this story. It's in the heart. And the family is where the problem is. The only way to fix it is to get your relationship with God right. And when that begins to happen, your relationship with your family starts healing. And your relationship with creation starts healing. And the culture just falls in place. It's not voting for the right president that will save us. It's the church acting like the church. First, in their own garden, their home and family. And then when their garden is good, then they can expand. But unfortunately, a lot of church families don't look different. Statistically speaking, at least. And this is the point that God is trying to communicate. Sin, sin, sin. You are the problem. (laughs) On that note... (laughs)